Father, we're at this place in this moment wanting and needing to see you for who you are, wanting and needing to hear what you have to say, and certainly needing to respond in a way that brings you honor and glory and demonstrates that indeed you have first place in our lives. And so as we come to your word now, we ask that you would clearly speak to us. Help us to be ready to take in and respond to what you have to say. Help us not to miss what you have for us individually this morning, as families this morning, and as a church family this morning. We surrender this time to you for your purposes in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want you to think back over your last week. What were the high points? Have you got them? Oh, some of you look like you didn't have many. What were the high points in your week? You think back, is it bringing a smile and you're going, oh yeah, that was good. Okay, now what were the low points in your week? Sorry to do that to you. All right, you're thinking about those too? All right. Now, did they all come together? Were all the high points in one stretch for a couple of days and then all the low points? Or is your life like mine and they seem to be mingled intermittently and so it's kind of a high point and then a low point and then a high point and then a low point. You ever go through life like that? Is that your experience? We have these highs and these lows, these peaks and these valleys. We have these twists and these turns. And it just struck me this week, as I was thinking about this again, that there are people who will travel many miles this summer, spend hours in lineups, and spend a lot of money to get into an amusement park. And they will wait in line in order to sit down, be strapped into a machine, and then be thrust upwards and then plunged downwards, and then twisted sideways and the other way, and spun around in circles, and all these kinds of things to experience these highs and these lows at a breakneck pace. And if they just pay attention to life, <laughs> like who needs roller coasters, right? I mean, it's just kind of up and down, and we have these things, and we're all over the place sometimes in our experience. I have a friend who, uh, when his children were still at home, they would have a powwow at dinner every night. And it went like this. They would go around the table, and everyone had to take a turn telling the rest of the family two things. The first was your pow, like a punch in the stomach. What was the low point in your day? And then the second was your wow. What was the high point in your day? And so they called it a powwow. And they went around and everybody got to share their peaks and their valleys from the day. And you got to learn a little bit about each other's life and experience as a family. Well, it's interesting how as a family, we can experience highs and lows together. But we can be experiencing highs and lows at the same time, can't we? One person's excited about their new job, and the other person's low thinking about a relational challenge. All kinds of things can be going on. Within a church family, we can have highs and lows all at the same time, can't we? In one week, a church family can be celebrating the birth of a baby and, and the, the death of a loved one. And we're kind of all, all up and down and over it. We can be celebrating that someone has come to Christ and, and grieving that someone has wandered off into sin. And all in one week, and these highs and these lows, they can keep coming at us. And that's just life, isn't it? That's just life. That's, that's our experience. 
Well, as we come to Matthew 17 this morning, we continue our our trip through the book of Matthew. We come to Matthew 17, and we find the disciples have both a a mountaintop experience and a real low in their lives and ministry. And these things are going on all at the same time. And so they're experiencing this roller coaster, just like you and I do. And we're going to find that as we come to Matthew chapter 17 this morning. Matthew 17 begins this way. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now remember, we're already told in verse 1 here just when this takes place. This is six days after the event, the conversation we studied last week in Matthew 16. When they understood and they announced to Jesus that they finally understood, the Father has finally revealed to them that he is indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And he has told them now from that time, remember that was the turning point in his ministry. When they finally understood that and the Father finally had revealed that, he now turns and he faces Jerusalem and he starts heading towards the cross. And he starts teaching them all these things that he must go to the cross. This is where he's headed. This is where this is going. And Peter steps in and says, no, no, this is, I'll never let this happen to you. And Jesus says, that's Satan's plan, not God's. And get out of my way. This is where we're going. And by the way, I'm not the only one going there. This isn't just a turning point for me, Peter. It's a turning point for you guys as well. Because it's not enough to know that I am the Christ. The demons of hell know who I am and it doesn't do them any good. It is never enough to just know that Jesus is the Son of God. We must respond and surrender. He said, if you will come after me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And so this has been cooking in their hearts and their minds now for almost a week. And six days later, uh, Jesus takes them up to this mountain. They come to this mountain. He takes Peter and James and John, the three of his closest friends and followers, and they go up by themselves up this mountain. And remember, they've been looking for this for a long time, haven't they? Remember the feeding of the 5,000 and why they totally missed that? They just wanted some time alone with Jesus. And Jesus looks at these three and says, come on guys, we're going up here. And he takes them up there and you can just maybe feel the stress leaving their bodies as they walk up the mountain with Jesus. Oh, this is going to be good. This is great. It couldn't get any better than this. Just some quiet time with Jesus. Well, yes, it could get better than this because look at what happens. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Not only did they get some time alone with Jesus finally up on this mountain, they get to see him in his glory. God says, I have taken the blinders off and I have shown you who my son is. Now let me show you one more time. And right there before them, he changes. And they see him in his glory right there in this moment. Do you think that that vision would have made an impact on these two men? Do you think that's something they would remember, these three men? Well, John certainly wrote about it. 
and his gospel, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, we've seen his glory. I was right there, this close. Peter writes in his second letter, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Years later, Peter is still writing about this and talking about this and thinking about this. I mean, this is the moment they see Jesus for who he is. Powerful and incredible. And they will see him now in this private moment, tucked away, hidden from the world on this mountain in this remote place. They will see him flanked by Moses and Elijah. They will see his clothes glistening white. They will see his face shining as he is exalted before them. And shortly, shortly they will see him again in a very public place for all to see, flanked by two criminals, naked and beaten and humiliated before all. And they are going to need in that moment to hang on to this picture they see in front of them right now. They are going to need to remember that while this makes no sense to us at the cross, we cannot forget who he really is and that God has this under control. And in that moment, they will need to reflect back on this one. And in the days to come, no doubt they do, for they continue to write about it. Well, behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets right there. According to Deuteronomy and Malachi, these are both forerunners of the Messiah. And they're right there talking with Jesus. They will be the two witnesses of Revelation 11. Remember those two witnesses in Revelation 11? They they, they each have the, the two miracles. The first, Elijah, will bring fire and drought. Sound familiar to Elijah's ministry? Moses will turn water to blood once again and bring plagues once again. These witnesses of Jesus to the world. And yet here they are in this moment. And you wonder what's going through the hearts and minds of the three disciples standing there taking this in. But let's just pause and say what's going through the hearts and minds of Elijah and Moses in that moment. As they are talking with Jesus... And no doubt he is explaining even to them how all of this fits together. And they are seeing it unfold right before their eyes all these years later. I have a picture in my living room hanging above my my couch. It's an enlargement of a, a picture we took when we were in Israel this March. Actually, when we were in Jordan this March taken from standing on top of Mount Nebo right above the plains of Moab 
on the side of the Jordan River across from Jericho. At the foot of that mountain is where Moses gives the people his last words. And this very spot, this Mount Nebo, is where God then leads Moses up and says, because in a moment of anger and pride, you made leading my people about you, and you claimed for yourself my glory over what I was going to do, this is as far as you get and no further. And he stands, and from there you can see towns and villages and cities of Israel. And he shows him the promised land. And then God takes his life right there. And Moses never enters the promised land until, until this moment. And for the first time, he is standing in the promised land with Elijah talking to Jesus right there. And you would think that in that moment he would be looking around going, I can't believe I'm finally here. Looking around and trying to take it all in. But what we're told is that Moses and Elijah have their attention focused squarely on Jesus. They are zoned right in. And they are talking with him. Luke chapter 9 verse 34 tells us that what were they speaking of? They were speaking of his departure which he would accomplish at Jerusalem. They were focused on Jesus and Jesus was squarely focused on the cross. And no doubt he's unfolding for them where this is going and talking with them about how it all comes together. This Jesus the true and final exodus the true and final messiah here he is and he's explaining this to them and in this moment Peter said to Jesus Lord it is good that we are here if you wish I'll make three tents here one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah and before we jump all over Peter and talk about wow this was a stupid idea what was he thinking why can't you just be quiet for ten minutes think about what he said he didn't say this is a great place to be why don't I get some snacks and we'll make a little shelter for James and John and I as we sit and take it all in it wasn't about him he's saying Lord this is a magnificent moment and we need to stretch it out and prolong it and enjoy it this is much better than what we talked about six days ago when you were talking about dying and being beaten and all that kind of thing. I tried to dissuade you then. Maybe I can slow it down now. This is a much better deal. Seeing you exalted as you are with Moses and Elijah, let's just camp. I'll make you guys tense. Like, let's just stretch this out right here, right now. And as they have this moment and Peter's talking about how great this is, how much a better plan this is, this cloud comes, we're told. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. And as they stand there and Peter is trying to prolong this experience and talk about how great this is, God comes to the mountain and he speaks. And he says, Peter, 
this is my son. He's here to do my will. I am pleased with him and with what he's doing. Listen to him. This is about my plan and the direction he is following, not yours. So stop trying to derail this or slow it down or readjust the the, the whole plan. Just listen to him. Focus on who he is. Moses and Elijah are talking with him and listening to him. You do the same thing. And this listen also implies obedience. Like, look at who he is. Listen to him and do what he says. Just focus here. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. As no doubt any of us would be. That, by the way, Mark tells us that this fear entered Peter which is part of the motivation for him speaking and offering to build tents. Luke says this fear enveloped the disciples as that cloud did. Matthew talks about this fear coming upon them when they hear the voice. Do you get the idea? Things have changed and they are terrified, these three. They're in a place they're not used to being. They're witnessing things they've never seen. And they fall on their faces in fear. And by the way, if anyone ever tells you that when they finally stand before the Lord, they're going to demand that he answer their questions about why their life didn't go quite the way they thought and all these kind of things, just shake your head and ignore it. Because scripture says when we stand before Almighty God, there's only one thing we ever do. That's to fall on our faces. You read Isaiah 6, Daniel 9, Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 44, John chapter 18, Revelation chapter 1. When, when John sees Jesus like this again, what does he do in Revelation 1? He falls on his face as though he were dead. They are terrified and they fall before him. And we're told in verse 7, Jesus came and touched them. I love that. It's like when he healed the leper at the beginning of Mark's gospel. He came and the leper comes to Jesus and says, if you can, you can heal me. And Jesus looks him in the eye and he reaches out and touches him. And then he heals him. This man from whom people had run for years. How long had it been since anyone had touched him? Jesus looks him in the eye and touches him first. And he heals something in here first. And then he says, you're clean. And these guys are shaking at the voice of God and the vision they're seeing and Jesus in his glory and Moses and Elijah and the whole thing, it's overwhelming and they're terrified and they're on their faces and Jesus comes and just touches them. He says, come on guys, don't be afraid. Come on. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Come on, it's time. We're done here. And they opened up their eyes and saw only Jesus. And I can't help but wonder, were they relieved? <laughs> were they disappointed? What went through their minds when they saw only Jesus? I think they had a new and continually growing understanding again of who He is. 
happens continues to unfold. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Elijah just came, Jesus. We saw him. You're the Messiah. He had to come first. He just showed up. Why can't we broadcast this? Isn't that the plan? And Jesus said, Elijah does come and he will restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has already come before this moment. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will be certain, will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The forerunner had come. He's already been here. He's already been here. Well, this, no doubt, was the one of the high points, probably next only to seeing the risen Savior for the first time in their entire lives. This mountaintop experience where they saw Jesus exalted in his glory, they, they, they heard the voice of God, they were right there in the middle of it all, and they carried that with them for the rest of their lives. And they clung to that vision of Jesus in his glory. We, beheld, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We beheld his glory. We were right there. Now that's a mountaintop experience. Have you ever had a, a mountaintop experience? You go away to a, a camp for a week or a retreat for a weekend and you, you just have this time with the Lord that he just opens your heart and your eyes to something and you're just so refreshed and so built up and so excited and so encouraged and you get in the car and you say, this is amazing. Lord, we've, I've met with you and you've fed into my life. I can hardly wait to get home. Surely they will, they will share my excitement and it's going to be fantastic and they will join in and it'll be amazing. And then you get home and you get out of the car and you find out how disastrous everything has gone all weekend at home and nobody wants to hear what you've been through. They want you to help solve all the problems and you come crashing down. While all of this was going on in the mountain, there was trouble cooking in the valley. Let's take a look. Verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This mountaintop experience where they see the shining sun 
coincides with this problem and this low point in their lives and their ministry in the valley is there's this total eclipse of the sun. This man comes to Jesus as Jesus is coming down with the three and they're talking about these things and they come down and approach the crowd. This man pushes through and he runs to Jesus and he falls at his feet and he says, Jesus, please have mercy on me. You have to heal my son. He brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus for help. He came in faith. I've been everywhere else. No one else can do this. But I've heard of this one. I've heard of this Jesus. And he can do anything. He has power over everything. And he is the only one who can solve my son's problem. And he comes in faith for help. But the disciples could not heal his son. Which is confusing to them. Because just not that long ago, he had sent them out in pairs to go and preach and to heal and to have power over demons. They'd handled this kind of problem before. So this is kind of an embarrassing situation. This is humiliating. We've handled this. Why are we out of our league now? It makes no sense. And this man comes to Jesus and he tells him what happened. Look at what happened. I came and your disciples couldn't do it. And what does Jesus say? Oh, twisted, faithless generation. How long do I have to put up with this? How long do I have to deal with this? And the answer is not long. Not long. And is he talking to that man in the crowd? Or is he talking to the nine? I would suggest as we keep reading that the nine are squarely in his sights at this moment. And he's saying, guys, you have such a short time to get this together. Like I was just gone for a little while and you already messed this up? What are you doing? What are you doing? I'm leaving here. How are you going to handle this when I'm not here? And I would suggest to you that that's part of what's going on and why only the three went and the nine stayed behind. There's an Indian tribe in the U.S. that used to have a very interesting process of working with their young braves and training them. On the night of a boy's 13th birthday... He was placed in a dense forest to spend the entire night alone in the dark. Until that moment, he had never been away from the security and safety of his family and tribe on his own. And now they placed him in the middle of nowhere in the dark and said, deal with it. Deal with it. On this night, he was blindfolded. He was walked miles away from home. And when he took off the blindfold, he was in the middle of thick woods in the dark by himself all night. You can imagine, every time a twig snapped, he probably visualized a, a wild animal ready to come and get him. Every time an animal howled, he wondered whether they were coming for him. Every time the wind blew, he wondered if that was hiding some other sound of an approaching problem. You can imagine it was a terrifying and sleepless night for many of these boys, these young men. And after what seemed like an eternity, 
The first light of dawn would start to break through the thick forest and reach down amongst the trees. And he would see the flowers and the trees and the outline of the path. And then to his complete and utter astonishment, not far from him, he would see the figure of his father, armed with a bow and arrow, who had been camped out close by, watching over him all night. To protect him, and to see just how he'd do. How have I taught you? Are you ready for this? And that's kind of what Jesus was doing in this moment. I'm going up here to be glorified. You're staying here. How are you going to do, fellas? Apparently, they didn't do so well. And this points to them for their need, to their need for their leaders who had gone with Jesus, but their need for prayer and ultimately their need for the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, bring the boy to me, and he heals him. He, he, he rebukes this demon, and in an instant, the boy is healed. And you can imagine they waited until they were in private, eh? These nine. And they sheepishly say to Jesus, so what was the deal with that? Like, we've done this before, and we tried that, and we couldn't do it. What happened? What was the problem? And Jesus said, you have no faith. Well, sure we do. No, because if you had the faith of a mustard seed, <laughs> things could have been accomplished here. Guys, you had no faith. This was all about you. You see, gentlemen, you are servants. You're not celebrities. You're not celebrities. This man came in faith. Mark 9 gives us some extra details of this event. This man came in faith to have his son healed. The disciples acted with no faith, and they left this man with shaken faith. Mark tells us he actually said to Jesus, if you can do anything, please try. And Jesus said, if. Well, all things are possible for him who believes. And he said, I believe. Would you please help my unbelief? <laughs> all right. He came in faith. The disciples acted with no faith and they had left him with shaken faith. And when we put ourselves between someone else and Jesus, it never works out for our glory. It simply causes an eclipse of the Son of God and that's who they need. That's who they need. Not you and not me. And that's what happened. That's what happened. Jesus looks at them and says, guys, it's not about your experience. It's not about your success in ministry in the past. It's certainly not about your power. You see, there's this thing called personal success syndrome. It kind of goes like this. Every problem in life that we encounter is somebody else's fault. And every solution to every problem we encounter seems to make me the hero. <laughs> And we kind of walk around like that. We see it play out in professional sports all the time. A team experiences great success. They finally reach the pinnacle of their sport and they win the ultimate prize and they are the champions. And suddenly this group of egos starts looking around the locker room and going, we all know I'm the reason that this happened, right? Like I'm the one that put us over the top. <laughs> you guys would not be holding this trophy without me. 
So I'll be down the hall talking to the manager looking for like a triple salary next year. And that's why these championship teams end up dispersing so often because everybody wants all the money because they're sure they were the reason. And they forget this was kind of a team deal. <laughs> Interesting. Well, you can just imagine when the man brought his son to Jesus that day, the disciples said, you know what, Jesus is busy. <laughs> He's in a meeting. But it's okay. <laughs> this, is just, this is just a demon-possessed boy. He's destroying your boy, wants to kill him. That's okay. Seen this before. We'll handle it. We got this one. We got this one. And they stopped singing Leaning on Jesus and started singing Lean on Me, and they meant it. And they meant it. And my question this morning is this. Is that us? Do we ever place ourselves between people and Jesus? Do we ever rely on our past ministry success or our experiences or our plans and say, it's okay, it's okay, God, you deal with other people's problems, we got this one. Because if that's us, we will not receive the glory we're after in that moment. We will simply destroy those who need the Savior. And that's not what we're here to do. Amen? When Ronald Reagan was president, he kept a, a sign on his desk that said, there's no amount, or no, no, sorry, there's no limit. There's no limit to what a man can accomplish when he doesn't care who gets the credit. Well, I would change that a bit. There is no limit to what God is willing to accomplish through his people for his glory when they stay out of the way and let him get the credit. That's the point. And Jesus said, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Well, this was a, a common proverb for facing obstacles. He may have even been referencing Isaiah 40 with the coming of the Messiah. You know, the, the, the valleys will be made, will be raised up, and those mountains, they'll be moved and made into a plain. But the bottom line is this. As Grant Osborne puts it, true faith is not seen in the amount it attempts. but in the degree of its absolute dependence on God while focusing on His purposes, not my plans. That's true faith. Now let's try something wild and crazy and see if God bails us out. <laughs> it's let's do what He wants us to do for His glory, His way, and let's count on Him in absolute dependence to do what only He can do. That's true faith. A number of our translations leave out verse 21 because some of our earliest transcripts have verse 21 in Matthew 17 and some of them don't. And so they kind of leave it out a little bit. The words of Matthew 21 are found in Mark's gospel and Luke, which records this event. And he says, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. 
And I don't think he's talking about there's different degrees and different types of demons and only some you can just talk to and some you got to pray and some you got to fast. I think he's saying you want to deal with this kind of situation. Where was your prayer and fasting? You made this about you. This is about total reliance on God, not on you. I was talking with Steve Twynham about this verse yesterday. We were talking back and forth about that. And he just said, you notice how Jesus says it only comes out with prayer and fasting, but he didn't stop to pray and fast? Well, how does that work? Beyond the fact that he's God, Jesus lived in a constant state of fellowship with his Father and dependence on his Father. And he was always ready. Always ready. And Jesus is saying, guys, are you always ready? Are you living in that state of prayer and fasting and total dependence on God? The bottom line is this this morning. We need together to keep our eyes on Jesus. Amen? Life and ministry is not about us. It's not about a person. It's not about a committee. It's not about a church. It's not about, it's about Jesus. Let's read Hebrews 12.2. Do we have that one? Hebrews 12.2. Let's read this together. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who taught us what ultimate surrender to the Father is all about. We need to listen to Jesus and to his plans, not ours. We need to lean on Jesus in faith because it's his power, not ours. It's his glory at stake, not ours. We are his servants. We're not celebrities. So may we guard our hearts in the process as we walk with him together as we serve the Lord together in this community, never relying on our past success, never relying on our own gifts and experience and training, never just charging ahead with our own plans, but making sure that everything, everything is for and about Him. Amen? Let's close by reading Colossians 1 verse 18 together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What is God speaking into your life this morning? Jot it down. But that's only the first step. What are you going to do with it now? What are you going to do with it now?